Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Ask the Industry podcast, episode 14. This one is with one of the most feared and revered comedy reviewers of them all, Kate Copstick, or Copstick as she prefers to be called, and we get into that in the podcast. She's been the chief comedy reviewer at The Scotsman, which is one of the biggest newspapers during the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, for over 20 years. She's also reviewed for TV and judged comedy both at the Foster's Newcomer Award as well as the increasingly prestigious Malcolm Hardy Award. She knows her stuff, essentially, and we get into what she likes, what she dislikes, why she's such a massive advocate of the free fringe, and in particular Peter Buckley Hill. Also, how to contact her if you want to get her down for your show to get a review, get some comments. We also get into the process behind... We also get into the process behind the reviewing internally at the Scotsman and talk about how many shows she goes to see during an average fringe, how many slots in the newspaper and online she is given, and therefore how much chance you actually have of getting your review printed. It was really fascinating for me to get this level of detail from someone so high up and so revered. She's, I mean, I've said that before, but... She's very much one of the names that if you can get a quote from, people will know who she is, both public and industry. We talk about her advocacy for the Free Fringe and why she only really reviews the Free Fringe, why she doesn't review Freestival acts, which is a bit of a disappointment to me because I'm on Freestival. We also get into the star rating systems and also weak comedians and things that she doesn't enjoy watching and the things that she hates when she gets contacted and also the stuff she does when she's not reviewing. I interviewed her in her shop in Shepherd's Bush called Mama Biashara, and it's a charity where she picks up a bunch of things that have been made by the local women and sells them for profit over here and then redistributes that money straight back into their businesses out there in order to help women who are struggling, predominantly women, but I think men are involved as well, to get back on their feet, to get out of the situations they're in and get out of dire straits that life has just handed them and it's a really lovely thing and she also talks about how that has informed her reviewing uh, you wouldn't normally think there's a link there but it's it's really fascinating for me this would be a great podcast for anyone who's going to edinburgh who's trying to get reviewers in to try and get quotes either for additional word of mouth while they're up there or for future productions for their show 
It'd also just be good for anyone who's thinking about going to a fringe at some point, because there's so much in this. I honestly can't thank her enough for giving us so much of her time. It's a bit of a chunky one. It's like two hours long, this. Uh, we did talk for about three, so I have massively cut this down, and I've cut out a lot of uh, unnecessary bits and, and pauses and everything, so it's kind of got a bit more of a flow to it. And I'm not going to talk too much longer, because I'm aware that uh, the length of this is going to get too long for some people. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it on iTunes. If you really love it and you think you can find someone who would love to listen to it as well, please share the links. You can find the link for this podcast on the website along with all the show notes, which will be at simoncane.co.uk. That's S-I-M-O-N-C-A-I-N-E.co.uk forward slash Ask the Industry Podcast. Or if you want to find this exact podcast, it will be at simoncane.co.uk forward slash ATI forward slash copstick. If you're really enjoying this content and you really want to support me and you got a fiver spare, a tenner spare, whatever you think this is worth, whatever the content in this is worth to you and you think it has helped you out in any way, shape or form, there's a donate button for PayPal on the sidebar of my website, simoncane.co.uk. I'm appreciative for any amount of money because it really helps support the show and it really helps keep me going. So without any more delays, this is Kate Copstick. I don't feel like a Kate. Um, when I was when I was uh, much younger, when I was a little girl, I was Katie. And then um, uh, I, as an older, when I was Katie until, ah, I suppose I was in my teens. And, you know, I suppose you never think about it if you're always called the same thing. But uh, I had an English teacher called Donald Campbell with whom I was obsessively in love and he used to stride up and down in between the desks in the uh in the English class and he would uh he kind of go well, right um racine what's the definition of racine copstick you'll know that and he used to cuff me across the back of the head and that did two things one uh it gave me a lifelong uh liking of a little bit of sm uh, and two, it, I thought, copstick. That's me. I feel like a copstick. Um, also, all the way through my childhood, I read uh, the Jennings books and all, all lots of books, P.G. Woodhouse. And so everybody, everybody was called, I say, what here? It's copstick minor. Um, and I just loved that. I, it, I felt like it fitted. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, that's it. It just feels like it fits. Copstick feels like it fits. Kate doesn't really feel like it fits. When I close my eyes and hear the name Kate, I see Catherine Hepburn. I see uh, even my grandmother, who I was called after. And I'm not like that. I think Kate's kind of a little bit... It's quite a kind of glamorous, strong name. And I don't feel I fit it. I feel I fit... Copstick. Is there a reason why you haven't changed your pen name in the Scotsman? They won't let me all the time. That's why on Facebook I have to be Copy Copstick because they won't let you just have one name. Um, uh, that's all the time because people say, especially when it's in any kind of a formal setting, they go, oh, it sounds a bit rude. And I go, no, it's not rude. It's what I want to be called. They go, oh, well, no, would it be all right if we called you Kate Copstick? So I'm always being kind of billed as Kate Copstick or uh, for example in the Scotsman it's Kate Copstick because 
they just think it doesn't look right with just copstick. That's interesting to me because when I called you copstick a minute ago, it felt much more familiar than I am. Yeah, exactly. And I felt a little self-conscious because I didn't want to over-familiarise myself with you too early. Mm, I mean, I, I think a lot of people say, you know, when I say, please call me copstick, they go, oh, no, it sounds a bit rude. But it's... I don't know. I, I, but I, you know, call me cop. My best friend calls me stick. Um, in Kenya, they call me copy. Just, I don't know. I, I just, I like the kind of androgynous quality of the second name. Maybe I just am harboring a latent desire to have been an English public schoolboy. So when people contact you, like over Facebook or email, do you get annoyed when they call you Kate? <laughs> Well, not annoyed, but, you know, my my name on Facebook is Copy Copstick. Everybody that kind of knows me through comedy or whatever knows that I'm called Cop- that I like to be called Copstick. And uh, it just sounds odd. You know, I feel odd, not annoyed, but uncomfortable when people call me Kate. And I, apart from my dad apart from my dad but um it feels like immediately what it says to me is they don't know me right so kind of like people haven't done their research into you before sending the email i don't think people need to read but you know it's just well i mean i i think it's pretty well known that i just like to be called copstick although the more i talk about it the more i sound like a pretentious wanker now like madonna or the but uh it's just it's what I'm at ease with and it's what I feel like. I think you have to feel like your name fits you and I feel Copstick fits me, but Kate doesn't. So when you go and see a comedian or maybe a character act, do you ever feel like commenting that their name doesn't quite suit them? Um, I can't think of... It's, it's never really anything. Uh, I thought of unless the act is called something like uh, the Cleverly Satirical Brothers... And they turn out to be neither clever nor satirical in that, you know. And I, what I have commented on, and, and it does annoy me unbelievably, is people who give their Edinburgh show a name. You know, um, oh, I remember many, many years ago when Jim Jeffries brought his first show up. He called it Porn Idol. And I thought, oh, that'll be interesting, fantastic. And it wasn't really about porn at all. He'd been an extra for five minutes on a porn shoot, and that was all it was. That irritates me too, because it's always about sex. You know, people always do it with a kind of a uh, a really sexy title, and then it turns out to be nothing to do with that at all. That irritates me hugely. And uh, last year. Uh, there's a, a young, very new Kenyan stand-up called Jambi McGrath who did a show called Bongol... She called it Bongolicious. And there was a picture of her looking Bongolicious. And you go along to the show and then it was about five minutes from her club act and then 50 minutes of absolutely heart-wrenching, incredible, powerful stuff uh, about the atrocities committed on her immediate family by the whites in Kenya. Now, it was it was incredible. It was gripping. It was wonderful. But it wasn't comedy. And it certainly wasn't bongalicious. So while I also, because I was interested because it was Kenya, 
um, I was interested and kind of gripped. I can imagine that if I'd been going out for a rollicking good laugh in the afternoon and I wasn't remotely interested in Kenya, I'd have felt seriously missold by uh, a poster and a show title that went, yay, great fun, and turned out to be absolutely wither-ringing. So I think it's important, um, not so much for a, a, a character, you know, a personal name, but to give you a show, a title that doesn't over or under or wrongly sell it. Do you mean like Dapper Laughs, who is neither dapper or funny? Now, you see, there we're, there we're parting company. I think he's very dapper, and I happen to think he really is funny. He makes me laugh. He makes me laugh out loud. Okay. Is that like his vines, or have you seen him live? I haven't seen his stand-up. Uh, I just came to him, as it were, <laughs> through through the, the vines, and then uh, I watched the TV show, which was absolutely not the world's greatest comedy TV show, but most of what is on most channels now is not the greatest comedy TV show. It was not, I don't think it was the worst thing that was on telly. And I was absolutely, I was horrified at the way he was treated. Um, just for, uh, and mainly, baby nothing comics ganging up on someone not because he was terrible not because he was anything but because he'd become very successful very quickly it was just vicious horrible and hugely hypocritical stuff I don't know you know and just back to the main thing I I think he's a very uh you know, attractive and charismatic performer. I think he's lively. I think he's very funny. And I think he's just a, a subversive character. Dapper Laughs is not Daniel O'Reilly. And vice versa. Now, just because certain people in the industry happen to have had uh, a, 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 sorry, a sense of humour bypass, I would put Dapper Laughs in exactly the same category as Al Murray. He's a character. And I don't understand people who don't think it was obvious that he is a character. And so that, that's one thing, that, that he was just a comedy character. Uh, and I think a very good one. And obviously quite brilliant, given that so many people seem to believe him. But secondly, I think we're in a very, very, very dangerous time when we are half a step away from the thought police being made official. Uh, comedy is not a place for the thought police, but they're coming out of comedy. If it's not women, uh, then it's men becoming thought police on behalf of women. Um, you know, you, you can't say this, you can't say that. You know, as I say, I, I fail to see what harm there is in a guy acting a character, you know, with a crazy, you know, catchphrase like well moist or whatever. And I'm speaking as somebody, I have not been well moist in a decade, you know. Um, but it's, you know, there, there was him, uh, Andrew Lawrence made a couple of 
perfectly interesting remarks and was shot down in flames with vicious, vicious... This was not intelligent commentary on the subject in hand. This was vicious backstabbing, again, by members of a comedy profession who just seemed to turn like piranhas on, you know, one of their own, and it's hugely unattractive. And then, you know, then we have the uh, Channel 4 is just having to defend uh, doing a, a sitcom about the Irish potato famine. It's I, I was reading, oh, it was a, a month or so ago, but the BBC had to have a full-scale, high-level inquiry and discussion about whether the jokes made about Samantha on I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue were just too sexist to be aired. This is I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue. This is Graham Garden and Tim Brooke Taylor and Barry Cryer and Jack D having a bit of an obviously tongue-in-cheek laugh. And people, again, female, uh, writing in, going, they're sexist, they're this, they're that, it's just a boys' club, de blah, de blah, de blah, de blah. Um, it, it's going to be increasingly difficult to be uh, a professional in the comedy industry if absolutely everybody is having their comedy balls cut off at the scrotum. I don't think they help themselves because, like, whenever I watch a TV program, they'll do a joke about, like, say, a woman, for example, and then they'll cut to a woman laughing as if to go, look, it's all right, she's laughing, it's fine, and it's patronising. Who in particular are not helping themselves? TV panel shows. Ah, right, right. They'll, like, do a joke about a woman and then they'll cut to a woman laughing and be like, look, it's acceptable, instead of letting the audience make up their minds for themselves. Yes, yes. But, you know, I think that um, uh, the panel shows are uh, they're they're a hard place you know they're a hard fight because comics are not nice people comics are egos on stilts and especially the comics that that get far enough that fight their way through the industry far enough to get on the panel shows or they get with a big enough agent to be plonked there because the agent could shit into a bag and have it on a panel show because the agent's so powerful and they're they're not there to be nice they're not there to be anything other than come across as looking the smartest. Now, that obviously is going to be helped by uh, somebody else writing gags for you and quite a lot of friendly editing. Uh, But it's an arena in which, historically, women don't fare well. Now, that is, I would suggest, because they're not naturally as aggressive and combative and um, I I used to do uh, make a lot of documentaries about superbike racing motorbikes and there's almost no women racing superbikes competitively but there was one uh, Katya Pernskin was the only female MotoGP racer and I interviewed her and um, she's a German she was an incredible but obviously a back marker when she raced with the boys and I said why why is it because you know you are fit you know, all senses of the word but you're fit you you can ride the bike what is it and she said and this is her saying this not me uh, she said that when it comes to 
anything that's kind of cut and thrust. Women have too many things in their heads. They think, you know, a man will just go, a man will look, for example, in a motorbike race, he'll look at a corner and go, must go faster, must go faster, must go faster. A woman will look at the corner and go, okay, well, I could go, or if I go there, I might bump into him. And what if I, if I take that line, then um, that, oh, but if I do that, then I'll be blocking off him. And by the time she's thought all that, all the men have passed her. Now, I think there might be an analogy between that and panel shows in that uh, maybe women overthink it. They, it's not as natural to them just to elbows out, open your mouth, say something. Um, because I love a lot of what the guy says about as funny as cystitis. But um, the women don't, you know, get their elbows out and get stuck in there as much. And then also in the edit, having been a television producer, you've got a, whatever it is, a 23-minute show, which is, you know, half an hour on... Uh, on uh, a commercial channel so you've got 23 minutes you are cutting for the gags so it's like cut to you funny cut to you funny I don't have time to cut to you and get a bit of a story or a whatever um, it's uh, the panel shows I don't think play to women's strengths particularly although you know the good ones are great Sandy Toxvig is fantastic um, on uh, on panel shows and she can kick in and, and I think the longer that we have panel shows as an important genre in comedy women are going alright okay this is how you do it oh marvellous and you know kicking in there but um, you're right in that they uh, they do that thing of cutting to them laughing and somebody once said it was a, a guy who was doing Mock the Week and he said the first thing you learn is never laugh never ever laugh because they'll just record you laughing and use it to beef up everybody else's jokes. So he said, I, just, I never laugh at anything on Mock the Week. So they can't use me to uh, point up the fact that something that Frankie Boyle has just said is hilarious. Has that been detrimental and like stopped him being able to go on panel shows? No, no, it hasn't. That is interesting because you'd think they'd mainly want people that would just play the game. Anyway, let's move on. There's a few people who have said that you are not the biggest fan of female stand-ups. Mm -hmm. Is that true? I'm not a fan of weak stand-ups, and I'm not a fan of stand-ups who take the easy road. Um, I like I like passion in my stand-up. Um, I like you know kind of attack. I like somebody who grabs their their set by the balls and sort of rings its I don't know testicle. No, no. I like stand-ups who really grab their, their set by the balls. Whether that is a Michael McIntyre type, who's a, these are the jokes folks, or whether it's a Mark Thomas or a Jeremy Hardy who's, who's more political. Um, I find, you know, it's, I like straight scotch. Uh, I'm not as keen on watering it down. I have found that a lot of the female comics that I see, they're a little bit weak. Um, I, I, by which I don't mean bad. I, I just mean they don't pack the oomph. Also, women have not occupied this space 
in the entertainment world as long as men. They haven't... Uh, male comics have, even in, in terms of um, uh, alternative comedy, as it called itself, have had since the 80s. There were very, very few women around then. Um, and a lot of them, like French and Saunders, weren't doing stand-up. Um, Joe Brand. Uh, who else? Uh, Hattie Hayridge, I suppose, a little bit, but not so much back then. There weren't, there just weren't as many. And so, the the lot, men have had su- decades and decades to kind of make it their own and find their own types of stand-up. Women are about 10, 15, maybe even 20 years behind. And you can't just come in and go, right, we're brilliant now. You you have to find your way, find what suits you and not just try to be a man. If there, a lot of women, it doesn't suit them to do stand-up like a bloke. I happen to like the women who do stand-up like a bloke. Uh, I loved the late, great Joan Rivers. I loved that attack. I loved the fact she apologised for nothing. But on the other hand... Uh, one of the most wonderful uh, shows I've seen, in fact, you know, ever, was Hannah Gadsby's show a couple of years ago, which I cannot begin to believe that that was not nominated or that it didn't win the prize. It was everything. It was hilariously funny. It was honest. It was wither-ringing. It, it was a real kind of emotional ride with huge laughs. It was brilliant and it was very female. Um, uh, Louisa Omelin, I I saw, uh, I I loved the, um, what was it, um, the last one, the Am I Right Ladies. Uh, I saw Am I Right Ladies in a ballroom rammed with, with people kind of standing room only. And it was fantastic, the oomph she puts into it, the, you know, the, the attack, the just, it's like a 100% performance, and again, very female. Not feminine, female. Uh, a guy couldn't do that kind of comedy, and that, that you know, it's personal, it's a little bit emotional, it's, it's, it's probably got um, more facets than your average male comics, even one-hour show. It's got layers. Um, and maybe that's another thing, that you can afford to have layers in a, in a one-hour show, whereas you can't really afford so much to have layers in a five- or ten-minute set. And uh, But, but I... I I love those shows. I think Sarah Kendall's a tremendous stand-up. Um, I, I like Susan Kalman. As I say, I've always been a fan of Sandy Toxvig, but again, she's not particularly stand-up. I thought um, the last show, the last couple of shows that Rona Cameron did were absolutely brilliant, brave and personal and hugely, hugely funny. Uh, and I, as I say, in a female way. But I, what I cannot stand are all the the kind of girlies who think they're stand-up. They do a lot of hair flicking. They do a lot of standard, you know, I'm a girl stuff. 
nothing's particularly interesting. Nothing's particularly true. And uh, that, that I really don't like. Not because it's female, because it's dishonest and it's weak. And it irritates me. Could be anyone saying those things. Could be anything saying those words. Two questions have come out of what you just said there. First one, do you then ever think that women can catch up in terms of time with men? Do you think there'll ever be a time where women will surpass or be level with men, in your opinion? Oh, I, th I think women are already at the stage because men haven't gone on improving for the past, you know, 30 years, for God's sake. That's why we have so much shit around. All that's happened is more and more and more men, guys, are doing it. They're not getting better. They're just getting more. And uh, you can see women who uh, who are coming in, who are, who are finding their voices, who are finding their, their ways. And you, you go and see someone like, you know, even Joe Caulfield... She's, you know, she's been doing it for years. She's very relaxed on stage. She knows who she is. She knows what she is. She knows how she's funny. And you're not going to get a shit show from from someone like that. That's, you know, the uh, if the if all women were like that, I don't mean the same style, but with that kind of confidence, with that honesty, then then we'd be fine. And I think more and more and more women are. But unfortunately, at the same time as that's happening. We've entered this, well, we've probably been in it for about 10 years, this era where uh, the industry is full of people who don't really want to be a stand-up. Being a stand-up is a, is a sad, hard life of, you know, trailing around the countryside, uh, constantly having to write new material, being shot down in flames by drunken audiences and whatnot. They don't really want to be a stand-up. They want to be famous and on TV. Now, that's why you get, and this is men, well, boys, uh, uh, just as much as women. And they're, they're kind of identical. And they've, either, they've gone, oh, right, Jack Whitehall, I can be like him. And that's, that's what you get. They're, they're not really interested in doing the clubs. They don't want to do the clubs. They don't want to improve their set. They don't want to hone and work towards an Edinburgh show. They'll do, you know one of the five billion pointless uh, comedy um, competitions, they'll go, right, won that, uh, did this, now I'm doing a one-hour show in Edinburgh. Uh, that's really not the way to go. It really, really isn't. Um, I think, and, and then, you know, if something huge doesn't happen, then they're not going to be stand-up comics anymore. Uh, I think that the, the boys are no different from the women to that extent. And in fact, there's probably more guys than women come into, comic, come into comedy thinking, I'll just go straight to the panel shows, that'll be it. Uh, I desperately hope that um, bad things happen and, and that, that there is some kind of cull of you know crap not you know wannabe telecomics um there's just a glut of them do you think there's like a chicken and egg situation because tv is getting so much more expensive and the internet is meaning that people's attention span is getting shorter 
so people are at home watching that and saying that's what I should aim for because that's where my career will go if I'm a comedian or do you think it's the TV producers saying we've got this massive talent who we can just chuck on TV the show's cheap to make let's keep doing them probably more the first one because there's now a generation that's grown up on uh, Mock the Week and you know have I got the buzzcocks for you Uh, and they see that's where they want to go because that's where people get famous. Um, and also, you can be the most shit stand-up in the world and you can still really hack it on these panel shows because everything's just a line here, a line there, a line there. And there are script writers and there is editing and there is all of that. Uh, so you can end up looking pretty hot shit when, in fact, you're rubbish. Um <laughs> mentioning no names but I can think of loads of them um, and, uh, and, and then what that leaves us with is a comedy industry that is top heavy bottom heavy with people like that so that live comedy becomes impoverished because these people are shit live so you, you know, and also what it does is it breeds an audience who's not really a comedy audience. I mean, when uh, alternative comedy kicked off and whatnot, the people who went to see it, not the people who were doing it and the people who went to see it were real comedy fans. They wanted to hear it. They wanted the message. They wanted to hear people saying these things out loud. They wanted, uh, they loved sitting in darkened rooms, you know, smoke-filled at that time. Uh, it was a real live experience, kind of akin to music gigs um and so and nobody was really on tv so if your favorite comic got on tv that was really exciting but because you'd seen him since he did a five minute spot you know uh comedy as an industry got fat and flaccid and we got the places like jonglers which although they gave live comedy a career trajectory in that you could make a living that they also turned stand-up comedy into something else, which was, you know, they, they, they created a style that was just about crowd control rather than clever comedy. Then when all the, the television stuff came in, and as I say, we've now got a generation that grew up with wall-to-wall comedy on television, now the audience for these people it's not a comedy audience it's a television audience so they're not remotely interested in watching new people or whatever or something interesting they just want to see that bloke off the telly and when they do see that bloke off the telly he's quite shit so they don't go again and therefore I do up to a point agree with the with people that say that the amount of comedy on television is to the detriment of live comedy um, but I also think it's because comics now, they have a fearsome sense of entitlement. They really do. You know, you're not that big, you're not that clever, you're not that special. You know, be fucking delighted that anybody wants to come out their house and watch you, you saddo. Um, but they don't, you know, it's, it's right from the get-go. The baby, baby comics. They do three open spots, you know, and they 
think they're fucking Michael McIntyre. No, you're not. And yet, oh, fine. They, you go around in cliques, and so many of them do, and they, everyone tells one another how good they are. Uh, so that then uh, they die on their hole in a hovel somewhere, and they have a go at the audience. Because obviously all their friends have told them they're wonderful and they can't be wrong. I, I think, I hope at some point comedy will, you know, have a bit of a clear out. Uh, I'm not quite sure what would have to happen. You know, Dave and Comedy Central and all these would have to just close down. Or, but they're, it's, it's, it's difficult because it's, it's a vicious circle because television is not a nice place. It's not run by brilliantly clever people. It's incredibly hungry for, I'm using the word in probably the wrong sense, talent. Uh, so there's always scout, you know, spotty scouts straight from their media studies degree in a jumped up polytechnic in Southampton, you know, out looking for talent. So, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of eating its eating itself so people still think you know oh I've got on TV they get on TV they're a bit shit but that doesn't really matter because they're gone tomorrow and it, it it's just going round and around and around and it is spiralling down the plug hole quite frankly No I totally agree with all of that I mean like I've had brief conversations with different agents and every time I've said that I don't want to be famous because I don't want to be famous the only time the only reason I'd want to be famous is for being a stand up Mm. conversation will quickly go to like uh, have you thought about voiceover work or yeah. have you thought about doing comedy acting and I sort of want to say in the nicest possible way can't I just do stand up like what's wrong with that you've just watched me for an hour what's wrong with that I mean I understand it a little bit because I work in marketing for my day job mm. it's like if you run a website you've got to get a certain number of pips a day in order to make the money that keeps the site going if, I'm, if you're my agent for example and I'm doing a 200 quid spot and you're getting 20 quid of that, how much time in your day are you really going to commit to it mm. and to getting me live work? And also, how much time are you going to commit to getting me stuff during the daytime when I might be earning more money for you? But to me, it feels like as a performer, there are new ways of finding your audience through the internet, which means you don't need industry as much. Mm. And I suppose in the case of Dapper Laughs, he's obviously found a way of doing that and obviously has management now, but before that was doing incredibly well and there probably is an element of jealousy and envy. Mm. What do you think about the internet as a means of creating an audience? I think it's a wonderful, wonderful thing and I, I think that uh, again, use the direct access to the worldwide interweb um, I think can be a phenomenal tool for someone who's not just a tool, no, but for someone who really wants to kind of find their comedy voice, find what's good for them, find what works for them. Uh, and, you know, it's not quite if you build it, they will come. But again, television is always looking to, to the web because the web, the, the more hidebound television gets by people saying you can't do a sitcom about the potato famine or oh no he said well moist or whatever um the the place to go to be brave to be crazy to be out there is the web it is is the internet it's 
a fantastic playground that where you can play any game you want. You can be as brave or as stupid or as rude or as anything as you want. Downside is, once you've done it, it's always there. You can never walk away from it. But um, it can be the most fantastic forum for uh, flinging a lot of stuff at the wall, you know, and seeing what sticks. It's not expensive to do. You know, you look at the number of people who've been found doing podcasts from their home or whatever. I think it is fantastic. And for somebody who, I don't know, maybe even their their kind of comedy is not probably going to fly on a five-minute spot in a club. Not all comedy comes up that way. Not even everything that might eventually turn into a stand-up show flies that way. And, um, you know, clubs rely on good word of mouth from other clubs. And if someone said, well, it's not so very strange stuff, you're not going to get a lot of open spots. If you don't get a lot of open spots, you're not going to grow. But if you go online... You can do your own crazy thing and and then wait for your know, comments to come in because they will come in. Then you can tweak it uh, as you want to. I think it's absolutely fantastic. And I think that, um, again, if you've got an idea, if you've got a concept that you know, if you went to a channel, they'd go, oh, that's lovely. But, you know, could get Jack Whitehall to do it. Or Sean Walsh would be awfully good in that. Uh, the the net gives you the chance to do it exactly how you want. Not send somebody in your script, not send somebody in your treatment so that they can fuck it up. Because if they can, they will. Um, but just to do it, do your thing, your way, and go, this is how it should be. What do you think now? And if you get an audience for it, they'll beat a path to your door. Absolutely. Absolutely. Totally, because I've, I've got an idea for a sitcom and I've chatted to some TV people through this podcast and through meeting people and uh, some of the episodes are 10 minutes, some of them are 20 minutes and they're like, you've got a slot. Exactly. And you've got to fill that slot and it's got to be half an hour long. And the amount of times I've watched a programme and thought, this could be a vine. The depth that the show is, it could be six seconds long and it would still be, it'd be better. Absolutely. And again, it comes down to they need advertisers. They need to sell the ad breaks. Yep. Which is why when mine's finished, I'm going to put it up on YouTube and just see what it gets. Yes. No, absolutely. And, you know, it is increasingly, it's where people are going. People are, you know, uh, the youth of today, they're, they're into, you know, Netflix and all of that. So they're not, they don't think about TV the way you think about TV, and certainly not the same way. I, when I grew up, there was only four channels. There was only three channels. Um, and so you were, oh, if I want to see this show, I need to uh, I need to watch it now. I need to be in at this time. Now, people, you know, it's... People can schedule the, their, their, their television the way they want to. As I say, Netflix, all the... the the ways you can just buy in what you want to see and also the freedom online just to go I mean I sometimes just go oh, I wonder what's here you know I'll type in a word into a search engine see what it flings up and you find some brilliant hilarious things and then you go "Ooh, I'll click on the little star thing I'll favorite that and I'll see what else this person 
comes up with. And it's, a, it's a wonderful, democratic way because there is no you know, 12-year-old commissioner with his media studies degree uh, who is getting in between you and your audience. It's a bit like what you're saying with the sense of entitlement. I mean, I've I've got I've met comedians who mentioning no names, who have openly said they've got a five spot, but they've got management, and so they're getting put forward for twenties. And they're like, well, I'll just do five with a bit of banter, and it'll yeah. work. Yeah. No, I mean, it's there's a it's a horrible. I mean, obviously, anyone who goes into stand up comedy has to have a massive ego on them. It's 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 not all about ego, but they have to have pretty much a cast iron ego. But now, so many acts that I see are the triumph of ego over absolutely everything else. And one of the uh, one of the main ways that that shows itself is, you know, I'll do a bit of banter. No, fucking, please don't. You couldn't pick up a dog turd, you know, let alone, you know, engage with people in the in the audience the art of banter very few people have it and when they get lazy it's just dull it's talking now i can do that at a bus stop um it there's very very few people kind of turn it into an art form adam hills used to turn it into an art form now he just burbles on in a totally predictable kind of way with a little thought bubble going aren't i engaging not necessarily and not all the time adam but um there is this sense of entitlement and I'm here and you should be thinking I'm hilarious and if you don't think I'm hilarious, then you're wrong. Um, you know, it's I, I always say, no, 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 there's the the relationship here. You're the whore. I'm the John. You know, if you don't get the right of your life, it's not my fault. Really is not my fault. You just fucking need to... You can get that out of your head. It's, uh, as I say, it's not a nice place. And, and you know, I, I think that maybe the free fringe and all the other free fringes that piled in on top where uh, Peter Buckley Hill led the way are helping because they kind of begat free comedy clubs down here. And... I think that that they are helping because they are less ego-driven and there are some nice free clubs and nice new uh, new work, you know, new material nights and whatnot that are less ego-driven and more about the craft and the form and the material. Um, but I think comedy is in a dangerous a dangerous place and either it's going to go forward and upward or it's going to disappear right up its own arsehole and there's a lot of arseholes about i agree um are there any free clubs in london that you like to go to i i, I really quite like uh, there's one called heavenly which is here in shepherd's bush on a wednesday night run by jumbie mcgrath and it's there babies there a lot of them so you see a lot of rough stuff and strange stuff and but the atmosphere is lovely um and everybody's you know a lot of people they stay around to watch one another's material and I you know I 
I I like it. I like it, and as I say, because you get you get a good mix. And I mean, I'm I've just been asked to do some judging on the amused moose. I keep forgetting which one. Laugh off, or whatever, but it's for baby, baby, baby comics, and I'm looking forward to that so much. I would far rather see a complete newbie with, you know, giving it all he or she has got and being a bit rough around the edges than see somebody who's, you know, pretty convinced that they're the greatest gift to comedy since Eric Morecambe uh, do a so-so 20 minutes. It's exciting to see potential. It's exciting. Even if they just have one moment of great in five minutes of... It's fantastic because you go, oh, oh, I saw the spark. I want to see you again. I don't want to see you doing much more than five minutes, but I want to see you again. And I would go and watch a show of of a mixed bill if you were on it because I'd like to see where you're going. When you're in Edinburgh, how many mixed bill shows do you go and see versus hour-long shows? I go and see as many as I can. And in terms of hour-long shows, the Scotsman pay you to go and review those how does that process work do you go with a list of shows or do they tell you you need to go and look at these specific shows no um they always used to tell me which shows to go to now because um uh everything is cut back and cut back and cut back and there's not nearly as many reviewers going around seeing any shows even for the scotsman uh generally speaking what happens is I send them a wish list of all the shows I want to see. Uh, there's usually about 100, 104, but I can't really see, physically see much more than that. Um, and then uh, Andrew sends me back a list of the shows that Jay Richardson also wants to see and asks me if I would mind if Jay got his full wish list. Uh, and if I'm also reviewing for Scotland on Sunday, then I review the other ones for Scotland on Sunday. I try. I have various rules now. Uh, I will not go and see a show that's in a venue of more than 300 people. A venue of more than 300 people is not a fringe venue. So, you know, somebody else can see them, whatever. If you're filling out, if you're selling out 300 seats, that's great. You don't need me. Um, So, and I try and see as much as I possibly can on the free fringes. I... I'll, if it's a a real kind of mixed bill, I quite there's no reason why you can't see an hour show that's made up of ten people doing six minutes each. That's really quite exciting. I like that. Um, and I say I go and see as many newbies as I possibly can in as many of the free fringe venues as I possibly can. Yeah, I've been told that you're quite the advocate of the free fringe. Oh, totally. I, I think uh, Peter Buckley Hill should have a knighthood, an MBE and anything else going, except he'd probably turn them down. Uh, because I think, especially with Peter's, the original Free Fringe, he's totally passion-driven. You know, maybe sometimes people would say to the detriment of everything else, but he is passion-driven. And the way he chooses his acts is, you know, that they are kind of passion-driven. So I would always try and see as much as possible. I love, uh, I, I love acts that go, well, I don't really have an hour. My show's 40 minutes. Fantastic. Honesty. Very good. You've already got a star for that. Um, 
I love people that, you know, come up on the free fringe, maybe to fling stuff at the wall, to have a go. I mean, I'm not so much in favour of somebody, you know, going to a large room in the underbelly and billing it as work in progress. Uh, you can fuck right off with that. Um, I don't mind paying nothing to see work in progress. I don't mind maybe paying a fiver to see somebody amazing's work in progress. But other than that, fuck you. You've either got a show or you haven't. If you want me to pay, better have a fucking show. Um, You know, this is, you know, if you are going to take up stuff to play around with in front of an ever-changing audience to look at building a show for telly, building a show for your next tour, that's great. But do it on the free fringe or charge a fiver or less or do a pay what you think it's worth. Um, But don't just use the fringe like a place to rip people off and still try and make a lot of, you know, make a lot of money. But I no, I... I absolutely. I spend as much time as I possibly can on the on the free fringes, um, and away from the big venues. I'm, you know, I'm not desperately interested in seeing a show where you know twice life size posters have been in my face all the way up and down the Pleasance. You know, if if that's what it's about, then I'm better off going somewhere else to let people know about a show that can't afford to do that. And that, that is maybe unfair to some people with enormous posters and huge flyering teams who are very good. But I'm in the lucky position now, I think, that I can help level the playing field. If I go and see a show um, and I love it, then my four or five stars is as good as a big poster for them. Um, And I like that. If not even better, because like a personal recommendation from an individual is worth so much more. We all think we're funny. Yeah. But to have an independent person say, this person is funny. Yeah. Word of mouth at the fringe is just worth its weight in gold. I found that out the first year when the i went up with a selection show and it just the t- room was too small people just kept coming it sold out yes yes well it's free fringe so you can't really say it's sold out no 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 but that it's that again um some some comics egos kind of drive them to go yeah i'm in a 150 seater well no well you're in you know if you're not filling it if you're not half filling it more for you you go into a 30-seater, you know, one of those tiny baking rooms at the top of the counting house or whatever, and you're packing them in, fantastic, fantastic, much better. Although you're a big fan of the Free Fringe, I've been told that you don't like Freestival, and I'm on Freestival, and I don't know if this is true, but apparently you won't review any Freestival acts. What I said last year, and I did, I I was... uh, quite upset on behalf of Peter Buckley Hill uh, at what was perceived to be a bit of a backstabbing uh, enterprise. Um, the, as far as I had understood it, it, it was like um, a laughing horse all over again, kind of a bit of a, we'll take some of your venues, we'll take some of your acts, uh, except that the laughing horse 
didn't come from within. I, I felt like a real et tu brute or et tu jewels uh, moment. And uh, because Peter was kind of spitting tacks about it, I, I genuinely, I think Peter Buckley Hill is, is an amazing, wonderful person. So I had to make a choice. I, he's my I don't know if I could say friend. I don't know if I would presume, could presume to say friend. He's somebody I admire uh, and like a great deal. And I felt I had a choice to make that if I um, went and reviewed lots of shows on the Freestable, I was somehow also stabbing him in the back. And uh, at that point, uh, Peter was more important to me than... Uh, anybody on the Freestable, I fully appreciate that a lot of the acts on the Freestable didn't know any of this. But you have moral choices to make. You know, you're, I choose not to drink any Coca-Cola products. I choose not to use any Nestle products, you know, because I don't think they are good people. Not because everybody working in a Coca-Cola factory might not be a lovely person. Not that I would love to help the the poor, the children who are cutting down sugarcane for Coca-Cola. Um, but I, I, I choose not to drink their products because I think they are people who do bad things. And I felt last year that the trio who started Freestival were people who did a bad thing for whatever reason I know they didn't do it just because they wanted to stab Peter in the back but um and I like Jules I think Jules is a great guy talented I I I did a little show with him he was kind of introducing me uh I know I like him a lot but I had a choice to make and I chose Peter over the first of all and I know I got a lot of stick for that and I you know uh, it is sad sad but it was you know everybody everybody doing a show on the festival was kind of um collateral damage in my decision to go with peter um i don't know what i'm going to do this year uh peter is not up there in any capacity although he's still helping with um admin and whatnot so and I fully appreciate... There were great shows on the festival last year. I was lucky enough to see The Man. Uh, oh, phenomenal, phenomenal. I didn't see him in Edinburgh. I saw him when he came to the Comedy Cafe. Uh, I don't know what I'll do. I think I'll take it on the basis of shows that I really want to see. But um, the the guys that, that run Freestival are very quick to go, hey, you know, she's cut, we've got her. No, you haven't got me. Um, I will go and see the shows that I want to see. Doesn't Still doesn't mean I think the Freestable did a good thing. But I, I will probably go and see Freestable shows this year if they look like really good shows. Well, that brings up two new questions. Um, well, first of all, you've not seen me before. Nope. Because I class myself as quite an indie comedian, uh, I, I make a point of knowing what all the reviewers look like and who they are and checking audiences to make sure I know if they've seen me or not. Uh-huh. Now, because you don't know anything about me, 
say I wanted to get you down to watch my show, what are the things I could do to get you to take notice of what I'm doing and what I'm working on? Uh, honesty. A genuine persona. A personality. Um, as, yeah, Honesty. Uh, anger appeals to me. <laughs> uh, subversiveness appeals to me. But at your peril, suggest to me that you are subversive and turn out to be Mr. Vanilla. That, that, as we were saying earlier, that really irritates me. You go, oh, it's really quite an angry show. And then it turns out to be Millie Molly fucking Mandy in a suit. Um, no, uh, honesty, passion, intelligence, something to say. That's about it. In terms of uh, the future of the Fringe, do you see more acts going to free Fringe? We've just interviewed Louisa Omalan. Hey. And she said that for the first time, she's going to have to go to the... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Paid fringe because she's unable to cope with the number of people turning up, which is a great problem to have. Uh, she's having to turn away 200 people a night, and she needs to employ people to you know, be the bouncers on the door and to help manage the queues. Can I suggest to Louisa that um, hopefully uh, Peter Buckley Hill on the free fringe, they still have the jam house. The jam house is a massive venue with very nice staff. Uh, so, it, and if it would help to keep Louisa on the free fringe, I'll go and be a bouncer for her. But it, it, no, the, there's always some place, you know, and I say the jam house is a phenomenal venue and it's a free fringe venue. Louisa, please. Don't go to the paid fringe. My promise to you is I will make sure she finds out about your offer. <laughs> if only because I'd love to see you as a bouncer. <laughs> I saw Phil Jupiter's there last year. Yes. It was so good to just, he was just out there talking to people afterwards and it was so lovely that he took the time. Yeah. I saw Porky there. It's, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. And it would definitely suit what she does. Absolutely. In fact, it would probably suit both shows. Exactly. There we go. Problem solved. Problem solved. We've decided for you, Louisa. 
Do you see more acts then going from paid to free? Yes, I do. Um, I see the the kind of good act, the decent acts going from paid to free. Um, because, uh, you know, and, and all the people that say, oh, well, you know, technically it's not good. For fuck's sake, you're a bloke, probably in not very well-washed clothes or a girl standing talking to people how fucking technical do you need to get you know and um that it really irritates me well there was noise spillage well if you're interesting people will listen to you if you're not interesting people will listen to the show next door your choice be interesting yeah the amount of shows last year where there was noise spillage but they let it distract them yeah and i'm sitting there thinking why you're doing a free fringe show fine and if you've got an hour and you're doing an hour why let a little bit of noise throw you off? That's two minutes thrown off. That will put off your timings for the whole show. Yeah. There's 20 people in here that actually care, who have taken the time to t- listen to you. Totally. And, you know, they've come to see you. They've not come to see you fucking, you know, mimsy on about Noise Village. It's the fringe. You know, you are on the fringe. You're on the free fringe. You're in a room in a pub. You know, fucking suck it up. Last year, I was in the back of an Indian restaurant, uh, Saruchi's. You wouldn't know it at Sriestival. Mm. But people had to walk through the restaurant to get to the show. They had to walk past me, because I was stood next to the door, performing if they were late. Mm. They played Indian music every so often, which I'll admit, all these things put me off like the first couple of times it happened. I mean, there's a buffet in the other room some days, and there was like, clat- like clatter- clattering yep. and plates moving around. I remember the first night being upset, like, oh, what am I doing? And then I sort of snapped out of it and thought, but wait a minute, I'm at the fringe. Yeah. Matter of people that didn't get this opportunity to improve over 25, 3, 4, how many days, consecutive days. Yeah. And I'm here, and I'm doing it. Yeah. And it's all part of, you know, life's rich tapestry at the fringe. I mean, I've seen uh, one of the venues was most noise spills the uh well i don't know that it is a venue anymore the hollywood tavern uh basically they've got a really busy pub and it's like an old edinburgh blokes pub so there's lots and lots of chatter and whatnot and then there's a curtain and then there's a venue and the 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 performer is virtually right beside the curtain so the closer you are to the performer the more noise spill you hear now in there i saw will hodgson the year he won Perrier Best Newcomer. I saw Laura Solon, the year she won the Perrier Award. It's, it, you know, oh, sorry, it was Foster's. Um, no, it wasn't. It was, uh, it was Perrier then. No, it was Foster's. No, it was, the, uh, no, it wasn't. It was the If Doc Comedy Awards. It was the, what was it before that? I don't remember. Anyway, it was not the Perrier, it was after, post Perrier's. Um, and, they were amazing. You, ne- you you thought at the beginning, oh dear, what a lot of noise. And then it just, you zoned out the noise because they were brilliant. Uh, and that's, that's massive, massive noise spill. And one of the best shows, this is not even stand-up. I went to see a play called Blackbird many, many years ago because I used to, when I started out, I was reviewing theatre as well. Uh, Blackbird was a one-man play uh, about a paedophile. Uh, it was dark, black as Ace of Spades. And it was being performed in the basement of the Club Eagle in Picardy Place. Now, during the day, Club Eagle was the route 
for the kitchens to the pub upstairs. So this guy was on stage doing this incredibly intense one-man play uh, about a paedophile with people walking through it, two pint chips. Uh, Plus, on the day I saw it, I was the only person in the audience. Wow. Now... Did they know who you were? Yes. He knew who I was. And it was one of the most brilliant pieces of theatre I have ever seen. Uh, It was just incredible. Five stars. Um... It, it, you know, you, you, as I say, if the performance and the performer grabs you, World War Three could be going on outside, and you will stay, and you will watch, and you will enjoy, or be enthralled. And it's, I think, you know, it almost adds to it. If you know what I mean. If if you're in a place and it's all quiet, like a, a church, then, but it's. You know, uh, 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 comedy is a combative sport. You know, it's, it's a contact sport, as it were. And if if you've got a little bit of real life permeating into your hour, then kind of so much the better. Use it. Use it. I totally get that and agree with that. Now, you're a reviewer, so you're kind of tied by the star rating system. Is that fair to say? The star system, nobody likes the star system. Well, the only people who like the star system are PRs and managers and managers. And yeah, I suppose the people that get five stars. But um, but that, again, that's an ego thing. Um, and anyone who's honest or realistic or remotely intelligent, I appreciate that quite a lot of comics don't fall into any of these categories, Um you know, everybody's five stars is necessarily a little bit different. Um, it's just a shit system. Uh, it's open to all kinds of ways to, you know, fuck it up. Uh, and, there, you know, there's no two ways about it that if a reviewer uh, goes, mm, I wonder if this is a three star or a four star. Mm. If it's a comic that, you know, you know when you like, you'll go, mm, I'll give him four. It's... I hate the system and uh, speaking, you know, through my own ego, uh, what reviewers and comics should be aware of is that it stops people reading the reviews. You know, if uh, some, what I desperately want to do one year just to show how fucked the system is, is give something five stars. So it's got five stars, and then the, the actual review reads, this was dreadful. I fell asleep twice and eventually had to leave before the end because I just couldn't bear it anymore. This, this I uh, can't remember the name of the performer because he was so dull. I never want to see him again. And ju- really, if you value your money, don't even spend the five pounds that this show cost. Five stars. Because what a lot of people do is just go, five stars. Oh, we'll go and see that. Yeah, it's a lazy shorthand. And... Uh, you know, so I, it irritates me because I, you know, sit at home of a day carefully crafting my well-chosen words to try and get across, get to people an idea, a flavour of the show, a flavour of why it's good, a flavour of why it's bad, uh, so that they can go, oh, that's, she thought that was five stars, but I would obviously hate it. 
or she thought that was two stars, but I think it sounds really rather good. Um, it, it's, it, it's too much shorthand. The, the PRs love it. The managers love it. Uh, the comics fight over it. You know, and it's all, you're always getting, uh, you know, four, but it read like a five. Uh, three, but it read like a four. You know, they never ever say, that was a five star, but it read like a four. Um, it's only ever a four, but it read like a five. Uh, and they, they, they'll star count. They'll, I remember a very good friend of mine, uh, uh, Paul Sullivan, who's a lovely PR, very honest, uh, very straightforward, very smart, was PRing for someone who shall remain nameless, Vicky Stone. Uh, and she fired, she, uh, I think she fired him eventually because she said, um, uh, I need more. He got her at the front page of one of the magazines. He got her a double page spread in one of the uh, broadsheets. He, all the main people, all in like in the first week, all the main papers came and reviewed her. And she said, uh, we haven't, I haven't got enough five star straps. Uh, I need more people. And, she was like, and he was like, well, everybody's been. No, no, but we, we just need more. And he said, well, you know, there's only the crappy uh, websites that aren't really worth anything. And she went, no, we're talking quantity, not quality here. And you go, well, and I think a lot, I think, I don't think Vicky's the only one to think about that. People want to cover their entire poster with five-star straps. And even though it's, you know, mum's net, uh, they're they're very happy as long as it's stars. The thing that annoys me about that is I spend a lot of time each year on the poster, and I mean I've just interviewed Idil Sukan about this. Hey. She's amazing and really showed me where I was going wrong. Right. I try my best and I try and make it as useful as possible for people who don't know who I am. Yeah. And then you see it like a weekend, people are covering their posters in stars. Yeah. It seems odd. You might as well just have a, your name and your show title and just a blank poster waiting for the stars. Well, yeah, why bother having a poster at all? Just take up some A4 sheets or A3 sheets. Yeah, yeah as you say, and then just put your stars. And it's, as I say, everybody is a little bit, all the reviewers are a little bit different. And especially the baby reviewers have got, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying you need to have done it for 20 years to do it well. Absolutely not. It's perfectly possible uh, to do something for 20 years and still be doing it badly. Many people would say that applies to me. But, um, you know, there's there's an awful lot of reasons. A lot of the, the newbie reviewers will give uh, a well-established comic a higher star count just right out of the box because, you know, when they meet him in a bar, they want, they want to be able to go, yeah, I gave you show five stars, which is not... A reason um it's like we were saying where you've just got a friend that tells you oh you're amazing when in reality you were shit exactly exactly and it's i i wish i wish but they would all have to do it at once all the the all the arts editors need to get together before edinburgh and say we're going to stop the star system but then what happens is that a lot of small publications they're desperate to have the star count because they want their name on somebody's poster so it goes you know five stars mum's net or whatever um it's important to them 
that their name gets on, I don't know, Stephen K. Amos's poster. It, it's, it, the star count just, it works for everybody, kind of apart from the punter. And it really should be for the punter. Well, if you want to give my show an awful review, but five stars, <laughs> I'd be more than happy to do that with you. And we could try and win the Malcolm Hardy Stunt Award. Simon, yeah, Simon Munnery actually asked me one year. Uh, he said, you know, he said, oh, will you give me my, come and see my show and give it a real cup sticky and one star. He said, because that immediately, you know, when, when the Scotsman used to do the page of shame, which was all the one star reviews together on one page, that one page sold more tickets than any other page because people come to Edinburgh, they want to see somebody famous, you know, they want to get drunk, they want to get laid, preferably by somebody famous, and then they want to see a real car crash. Yeah, totally. Um, I rem- a few years ago, uh, I was in Edinburgh, and I can't remember who it was, which is awful because it sounds like I'm avoiding saying who it was, but they did a show, and Steve Bennett just gave gave it a one-star review and a horribly brutal review, and everyone went to it. And then I was at the Pleasance Courtyard with some people just drinking, and we were both like, oh, did you go and see it? We went, yeah. And we both said, oh, we screwed up this bit where we dropped a tape or something about five minutes in. And we were both like, oh, did he do it in five minutes in with yours? And we thought, he must have intended it to have that shit bit in it if it happened the same point in both shows. Yeah. But it was a case of being good enough that you can be shit, if that makes sense. Yeah. And because there's a lot of that, you know, you see people, oh, God, no, he corpsed. You go... Oh, he corpsed when I saw it. Oh, right. And then it's not funny anymore. Well, maybe if it came down to talent, he was just overly ambitious and he didn't have the ability to do a bit that was sort of meant to be shit, but on purpose. Yep. Oh, well. You have been a judge for several different things over the years. Do you enjoy judging? Mm. I think it's difficult, especially with comedy, because funny encompasses so many different ways of making people laugh and some people's kind of funny is not particularly suited to leaping on stage doing five minutes and leaping off again um i i always do um uh, so you think you're funny which is interesting um and sometimes sad because you see so many people modeling themselves on other people but again the the ones who are just themselves shine through uh, i i love doing the the you know the really new talent but then again a lot i say a lot of new talent is and that's not how you judge it and it, it's it's putting a lot of pressure on them uh i say five minutes is not everybody's bag um everybody's looking for different stuff. And in terms of something like uh, the Fosters, there's an awful lot of agendas at the table. And, you know, I I bloody love doing the Malcolm Hardy Awards, the increasingly prestigious Malcolm Hardy Awards. Uh, yes, the increasingly prestigious Malcolm Hardy Awards. Because um, it's so open-minded. You know, it doesn't need to be completely crazy. It, it's just something that is entirely itself. It's comedy creativity. 
Now, that doesn't mean you've got to dress as a banana and, you know, wee into somebody's mouth. Uh, it could be anything. And we've got the act most likely to make a million quid and we've got the cunning stunt. Um, and if we don't see anybody, then we won't give the award. You know, it's... Uh, I absolutely love it. And John Fleming, who kind of started it, created it, and is still is the powerhouse behind it, he's gloriously open-minded about all kinds of comedy. And I just, you know, people like, you know, Johnny Sorrow and the, the Bob Blackman Appreciation Society, if people just went to see that, you know, it's a joy. It's an absolute joy. And to be able to give an act like that an award is just phenomenal. And, I mean, even Louisa won... Uh, most likely to make a million quid. I hope she does. Um, but, you know, a couple, couple of years before that, Bennett Brandreth, Giles Brandreth's son, won that that award. Uh, Trevor Noah, I think, was uh, uh, won... Yeah, he won it the year before. Or, no, he won it this year. Or, I forget. Anyway, he won it one year. But um, it's a genuinely open-minded judging process when you say there are agendas at play with the foster perrier was it fosters when you were doing it i was judging no i was judging it oh yes i did judge it when it was perrier yeah the last the last two years in 2003 dimitri martin won it yeah and in 2004 jackson way won it yeah and i was going to ask if you agreed with those rulings but it sounds like you pushed them forward that was yeah they were i no, you'll find this hard to believe. But I can be a bit of a bully. No. Mm. <laughs> and uh, everybody was really nice, you know, around the table and whatnot. And, um, and and that was the year Will Hodgson got Best Newcomer and then Wayne, um, you know, what do you call it? Um, mm, 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 mm. What was his name? What was his Anyway, the, the the guy who won Best Newcomer the second year, Wayne. Anyway, that'll come back to me. But yes, I, I remember, especially with Jackson's Way, uh, when I brought it to the table, people thought it shouldn't be eligible because it was theatre and not comedy. Um, uh, all, and people didn't really want to see it, even, because they and. But it was like it was like twelve angry men. First of all, it was just me, and then I got—I think it might have been Bruce Dessau or somebody—to go and see it. And he was like, "God, this is amazing! It's incredible!" And then we got someone else to see it, and bit by bit by bit by bit, uh, we got people to go and see it. And once people saw it, you know, most of them loved it. And we so we kind of pushed that through. Um, it was the same with the the first year. Uh, he didn't win, but he got a nomination. Um, Reg Hunter for White Woman. Um, the chairman, chairperson of the panel, wanted him to be made ineligible because she said the show was racist and sexist. And so when I, when I say there's all kinds of agendas, I mean, there are people there who are looking for stuff that will go to telly. There are people there who desperately want a woman to win. There are people, you know, all kinds of agendas. And I've always thought, well, it's just, isn't it just it's a comedy award? You know, isn't it for the funniest 
show. Um, but it, it's as long as Nika Burns is running it, it will be a fair judging process. As long as Nika is there, because she is continually and ever passionate about about comedy, and she really knows her comedy. And I I I admire her more than most people I can think of in comedy, apart from, of course, Peter Buckley Hill and John Fleming. Um, she is an extraordinary power that has kept that going. And as, as you know, she always said that it's not really, um, you know, the, the, the prize giving. It's the, as long as there was the Perrier, as long as there is the Fosters, round about that time, everybody's talking about comedy. And it did that. The Perrier did that. It got people talking about comedy. It got uh, even people outside the industry talking about comedy. And the whole, you know, it's not nearly as much as it was for some reason, but the whole place is buzzing with the who won, who's on the shortlist. Oh, that's a terrible shortlist. Oh, that's a great shortlist. That's good because people are talking about comedy. Nika is someone that I've contacted and I really want her on the show. She's phenomenal. She's wonderful. I think she provides just such a unique insight into awards in general, but also the bigger picture in Edinburgh. She's just a truly wonderful woman and a phenomenal... You know, Comedy should really sit back and realise how lucky it is as an industry to have somebody like Nika, you know, in its corner. Comedy is like dominating Edinburgh at the moment, or it feels like it. It's the biggest chunk of that programme that's going up. I mean, do you think there's too many comedy shows or too many people doing stand-up? I think that a comedy is a, is a massive bully. I think it's really sad. I think it's to the detriment of the fringe that uh, com- the comedy industry, the comedy professionals came up. There didn't used to be a, a different comedy section. It was just uh, part of theatre, really. Uh, and then... I mean, I remember when it changed. I was doing a comedy show uh, at the Pleasance, nineteen ninety-one. Five stars, the Independent. The future of co- the future of comedy is here. <laughs> well, how wrong was that? Um, and you know, I remember that was the year Avalon came up, and you could kind of feel the cold wind blowing, and it was all like, "This isn't fun anymore. This is industry." And uh, I think with Big comedy came big PR. Nobody had a PR, you know, at the beginning of the night. Nobody. And then they came with their big PR, with their big posters, with their big publicity campaigns, with their big everything, with their taking over the big rooms, with their, ooh, watch my star count. Um, and it became not such a fun place. The, it became not uh, a flat playing field. It became a them and us. It became a money talks. Uh, then it became a money shouts. Then it became a money has deafened everybody so that if you don't have money, you're pretty much screwed. And just when I think it would have imploded, the Free Fringe saved the festival. I think the Free Fringe and, you know, and the Free Festival and well, I don't know what the free is going to do because it's only been there a year, but but all those free venues, they were the safety valve that has saved the fringe. The whole... Because 
you know, um, theatre was being squeezed out, theatre was being squeezed up the, the brochure so that it was kind of hidden behind, you know, spoken word, physical theatre, music, all of that were being just smothered by industrial comedy. Um, now that the free fringe is there, I think that's fantastic. And I, I think that uh, I feel sorry for um, all the other sections of the programme because they are still, to a little extent, smothered. But while everything was turning into, you know, industrial effluent in the comedy section, the fringe was still alive. The, the other sections kept the fringe alive. If you go to the theatre section, if you go to the physical theatre section, the dance section, they still think like fringe people there. They're still enjoying it. They're still cooperative. They're still not stabbing one another in the back for the sake of an extra half star. They, all the time that comedy was busy setting it in plastic, those other sections were keeping the fringe alive, no matter you know how hard comedy tried to kill it and just turn it into a trade show. And comedy very nearly did that. But as I say, the, the other sections kept the Fringe alive and now the Free Fringe and the Free Festival have, have revitalised it. Yeah, in the last episode, we had Bob Slayer. Yay! We love Bob. Yeah, he's amazing. I really like him. We, we were talking about the purpose of the bookshop and why he set it up. And he was saying that it's to keep the big four in check. Yeah. To add like a competition element to it. Because he said that they're like free, but better than free because they're not free. Or something like that. You know, it's the it's the kind of pay what you want, isn't it? Or it, and then it's the if you well, you talk about that next week. If you want to to book in advance, you pay a fiver. And look, what happened? I mean, I uh, when Adrian Truscott did her show, you know, asking for it, I was desperate to see. It. I I'm a big fan of Adrian's, and I loved the idea of the show, and I fucking adored the show. And immediately, like on the second night, gave it five stars. And, um, well, look what happened. There we go. Then other people came. And you, you, when, a, when a hugely successful show like that is in some place like the bookshop, that's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's a fucking fringe. People should be standing out in the cold watching a show through a shop window. Uh, they, they, they should be. It is a fringe. You said you got reviewed as, was it the future of comedy? The future of comedy. And obviously it didn't quite go that way. <laughs> um, in the nicest possible way which reviewers are the ones that you maybe don't look up to but that you will always read and you would recommend people performers or audience read because you think they're great at what they do bruce desso i think i think he's intelligent i think he's thoughtful i think he never has you know a knee-jerk reaction he's never petty um i like bruce's reviews and I read Bruce's reviews um, above and beyond and before anyone. And is he the only one? Mainly, yeah. I, I think Steve Bennett, uh, I disagree with him quite a lot. But uh, I think the longer he writes, the better he gets. And he sees so much. And I think he's becoming, uh, you know, kind of more 
broad-minded, and I, I do always read his stuff in Chortle. Yeah. And Chortle is a fantastic. You know, it's another way that the web is is aiding comedy, is those, you know, Beyond the Joke and Chortle, those comedy websites where you get intelligent, informed stuff and not just some 11-year-old chuntering on. Cool. I would assume, then, that you ignore a lot of PRs because if you go to the Free Fringe a lot, you're probably not that interested in what PRs have to say about paid shows. Yeah, there's very, very few PR people whose word I would take. Um, I would believe, uh, yeah, Paul Sullivan. I would definitely... Sometimes Madeleine Bennett. Um, Oddly enough, now that I know her, Mel Brown, who is, uh, you know, a real kind of the chieftain tank of PR, but I know her well enough, and I know her well enough for her to say to me, no, you'd hate that. Don't go and see that. You'd loathe that. Um, and, and you know, she she really can be a bit of a bully, but if she's on your side, she's a force to be reckoned with. And as I say, now I know her well enough to go, don't talk shit. Um, but certainly, Paul, David Burns as well is somebody who's doing a lot. He does a lot of theatre as well as, um, uh, as as comedy. But he's he's pretty honest. Um, there, are, you know, there are good people out there. But I would never ever. Hmm, trying to think, I very rarely, almost never go and see a show because of PR. Uh, I go because I want to see it. And I, I, you know, I really would never, ever, uh, although some of these people are my friends, advise somebody to spend a lot of money on PR. As you found out, word of mouth will sell your show. That is what would sell your show. A PR can maybe help with getting you a couple of bits in a newspaper, in a you know, in a, in the Scotsman or whatever, because it's difficult for a very small act to engage, you know, Andrew Eaton or whoever is, is commissioning the stuff. But in terms of selling your show, which is what you should be thinking about, word of mouth. My problem is I'm quite an analytical person. And that time when I went up to the fringe, I didn't know how the word of mouth started. Mm-hmm. So I was unable to pinpoint it and learn from it and try and recreate mm. it. And I ended up asking the audience at the start of every show and it was really varied. It was the venue, it was the time slot, it was the title, it was the description, it was loads of stuff. So uh, when we had Louisa on, I asked her how she started word of mouth for her show. And she said she just asked her audience to tell people who they thought might enjoy it. I mean, are there any hints or tips or tricks that you know that that start word of mouth? And I don't just mean because there are two types of word of mouth. There's word of mouth for audience and there's word of mouth for industry. And I mean, I know it will change each year because, you know, you guys will talk differently each year and get on with different people each year. But are there certain narratives? I mean, like if you went and saw Comedian Y and you were, would you jump on email and go, Bruce... You're going to love this guy. Go and see him. He's amazing. No, I probably wouldn't. Uh, what I would do would be to get on Facebook and go, 
this was just absolutely incredible. I have to, I mean, I know I'm going to review it, but I have to tell you about this now. It's wonderful. It's great. Uh, certainly, I mean, we do. Uh, the, in Edinburgh, it's a tiny place. We bump into each other all the time. It's almost impossible to miss other reviewers. So, and you always say what we've seen that's good, what we've seen that's dreadful. Uh, and you always make notes and what uh, other people say. Um, and you listen to what punters in the street say. You know, what, what normal people say. Um, and people in the venues. Uh, you know, you go, like the, 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 the staff in the venues, anybody, everybody. And I, th- I think if more people would just concentrate on fucking well doing a good show, you know, at least give it a week just being brilliant. And then if that turns out not to be enough, you know, the, well, for example, when Cunt and the gang did the stickers, the penis stickers, brilliant, utterly, absolutely brilliant idea. You don't have the cost of posters or anything like that, and it's fucking hilarious to see, you know, Daniel Sloss and all these different people with cocks in their arses or in their mouths or whatever. And okay, a lot of the big promoters had a complete humour bypass about that. But by that time, everyone was talking about the show and it was absolutely rammed. Everybody had gone to see it. So you have to be very clever, which is obviously something that's beyond many comedians. But clever is... And just think about targeting your stunt or whatever um, and get yourself out and about do all the shows you can pop up on anybody's show that you can uh, always have your flyers with you or, or whatever you have never be afraid of going up to a reviewer and saying look because that's I would far rather somebody came up to me and said look, uh, sorry to bother you, but what about this, blah, 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 then got a PR to do it. I, you know, I've, my email is copstick, C-O-P-S-T-I-C-K, at bobbiesgirl, B-O-B-B-Y-S-G-I-R-L, dot co dot U-K. I'm totally up for being uh, approached via email. And on Facebook, I'm a copy copstick, because I'm not allowed only to have uh, one name. So uh, contact me. You know, if you don't believe in your show enough to contact me, then... I'm not going to come because a PR says. I'd far rather hear from you. But if you really want to come along, you better be good. Or interesting. Or brave. Or something. You're a judge on awards. And most awards, they have a minimum time restriction. An hour is how long you have to do for the show. Well, some shows. I think it's 50 minutes for the, yeah. for the Fosters. I, mean, I know the Freestival team are pushing for 30 minute and 45 minute shows do you think there should be that minimum limit of 50 minutes an hour do you think you can have like a great show in just 30 minutes well some shows are outstanding at half an hour but um i think the i i i do think people should be encouraged to think about what is the life of your show if the life of your show is half an hour do half an hour of great. Do not do half an hour of great and 20 minutes of padding and old material, which is what a lot of people do. Uh, do not do half an hour of great with 10 minutes of banter at the top and 10 minutes of faffing around at the end. Do half an hour. Now, again, that depends whether... 
your uh, impetus is to do a really great show or to get yourself looked at by the Foster's judges. Now, if, you're, if getting looked at by the Foster's judges is that important to you, fuck you. I think that's, you're, you know, your priorities are wrong. I have no sympathy. Fair enough. As the head reviewer of The Scotsman, you're obviously limited by the number of slots you have in that magazine and online. Yeah. If you saw a show that you couldn't get in the newspaper or online because it's too late in the fringe or all the spots are taken or whatever, but then you go and see it and you and you tell performer why this is the best show I've seen in five years or you, or you give them just an amazing quote, can they use that or do all quotes from you have to be in print? Yes. I mean, that's happened... Uh, that's happened several times, especially. I mean, uh, the, the the review did get printed, but only because I wept down the phone uh, to Andrew Eaton. I stupidly, 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 and I, I just, I, I'm still beating myself up about this. Um, Alex, Alexis Dubus's show, Cars and Girls, which was on at the stand last year. I was supposed to go and see it on the afternoon about three o'clock. I was supposed to go and see it uh, in the first week and I turned up the day before it opened and then because I had everything scheduled, I didn't see it until the very end of the festival and it was brilliant. It was beautiful. It was just a perfect little show. It was glorious, a joy, an absolute joy. Uh, And I give it five stars and all that, but it was a bloody end of the fringe by then and I really had to push it to get it in there but uh, with shows that um, I see and it's too late to get them in uh, I can I'm very happy to send people the review um, and they can put my name but they just can't put the Scotsman so if you came to see say my show and for whatever reason you didn't want to submit the review to the Scotsman could I email you and ask to see the review? Yep. Or maybe just get feedback, maybe not even get a whole review, just to say to you, what did you think? I saw you in the audience. I'd love to get your opinion. Yep, totally. Totally. I mean, uh, The Man, for example, uh, when I went to see him, it was uh, you know outside the festival, and uh, um, he asked me, Chaz, his manager, asked me if... I, he said, where can you review it? I said, well, I can't really review it anywhere other than, um, you know, I would obviously I would stick a bit on Facebook. So he said, well, can I use that? So I said, yes. So I basically wrote a review, put it up on my Facebook page, and he pulled quotes out of that. Cool. Do you think there are too many awards in Edinburgh? Yes, I do. Far too many awards. <laughs> no, absolutely. Far too many awards. There's going to be an award for everything now, isn't it? You know, every, comedy is not... Every kiddie wins a prize. Every kiddie does not win a prize. Get over it. Move on. I feel like you've been asked that before quite a lot of times. No, not really. I just, yeah. Okay. You judged the Malcolm Hardy, or sorry, the increasingly prestigious Malcolm Hardy Award, and you judged the stunts for the year. Yes. Does that mean that the stunt has to reach you, or can it be something that you've been told about that... Has happened and just you've not had any contact with it. Oh, well, you know, just we hear about the stunt. Yes, absolutely. Anybody who's, you know, some stunts we, we trip over for ourselves. Um, 
uh, other stunts, uh, people pathetically try to involve us directly, which is a little bit sad and desperate. But no, it can be uh, word of mouth or, you know, like when Barry, <laughs> Barry Ferns published whole copies of Broadway, absolutely brilliant. And best of all, because I actually picked one up, I thought, oh, yeah, all right, okay, without even noticing it was fake, as did a whole load of other people at the Pleasants, which makes it even more brilliant. You know, the cunt and the gang one with the penises was monumental. Um, so it needs to be something, you know, kind of a bit fresh, clever, and not just same old, same old. And that's getting more and more difficult to do. And the fact is that if there isn't uh, a cunning, a, a stunt that's cunning enough, we, we won't give the prize. Same with if there's not somebody who's going to make a million quid, uh, we won't give the prize. And I suppose if there wasn't anybody who was brilliant enough, we wouldn't give the main award. I feel like more awards should do that. Like if yeah. there's no one worth giving the Foster's Award to, they just shouldn't give it to anyone. Absolutely. And you've also judged for TV with the Show Me the Funny programme. Yes. Why did you say it like that? Well, that was just, you know, it could have been such a lovely show. Um, and then somebody decided to do a cut and shunt job. So it was going to be the X Factor for comedy. Woo, great, nice idea. But no, 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 no. Somebody said, well, actually, you know, The Apprentice is pretty popular as well. So let's just do half of The Apprentice and half of The X Factor. And it was just a fuck up. Yeah, when I spoke to Stuart Goldsmith about this, who he was on it. He said, yeah, when I was sold it, it sounded great. But then yeah. in the edit, it didn't quite come out the way they promised it. And then they, you know, they spend... And, and nobody... What happened eventually? And I, they could have, I believe, dropped all those stupid challenges. But they didn't. They kept going with them. Because after about the second show, they could see that people were not tuning in during the first half of the show because that was all the challenges. They were just tuning in to see the stand-up. It was called Show Me the Funny, and it didn't show them the fucking funny. Sort of missed the point then, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, because there were... There were, And the, the other thing was that, uh, not me necessarily, but Alan Davis and the, the guest judges, you know, Bob Mortimer, Johnny Vegas, Joe Brand, there were some fascinating, intelligent comics with fascinating, intelligent things to say. Um... And you didn't hear any of it because you were too busy watching people running up and down a hill doing an army exercise. Uh, that was tragic because you don't often get the chance to hear people like that talking about their craft. So TV judging versus live judging, is it basically the same thing because you're just watching a performer perform or are there even more agendas at play? No, I mean, we were just we were just looking at them and judging the funny but what does happen of course is that we discussed the funny for about 20 minutes for each act and then when the acts came in to talk to us we talked to them for another 15 minutes and it ended up with two sound bites and you know a cutaway of me laughing what was your reason for taking the role then was it just you were promised the x factor of comedy and um yes it was supposed to be uh, X Factor for comedy and um, I am as ego driven as the next person and it was ITV1 um, but it sounded great you know comics it just sounded there was no hint 
when we were talking it through ever of these challenges and tasks and things nothing I just thought it was going to be a stand-up competition and I was going they wanted me to be Simon Cowell with tits well with bigger tits slightly bigger tits would you be interested if someone wanted to do an online version of the X Factor for comedy absolutely yes I'll talk to you after no absolutely as long as it was unadulterated you know comedy with no no it would literally just be comedian five to ten minutes with you three other judges fantastic in a proper venue yeah of course i'm a performer as well i want a great venue for this so yeah we can talk later you describe yourself in john fleming's blog as a renter gob for the comedy industry why was that well i what i um for a long time you know during what i laughingly refer to as my career uh, that's uh, that's I was kind of like rent a funny gobby woman for all the old discussion shows and late night bear pit shows and um, radio and television like people with big opinions. That's why Katie Hopkins has a life, even though she's the lowest form of life. Um, and uh, I can do that like falling off a log. And if you want to make any kind of a career out of it you have to know what you are you know no one and what people wanted me for was a strongly held uh loudly uh exposited opinion and so that's what you do and i know i always knew um if anybody still now you know i get called up by the jeremy vine show and whatnot and i know they don't want me to go on there and talk in a reasonable voice and, uh, you know, kind of discuss the ins and outs of an opinion. Uh, they want me to say, well, you know, I think if uh, the woman gets pregnant, she should just immediately get a knitting needle and get rid of the buggering thing because we've got enough children in the world. They don't want to hear me discuss both sides of the, 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 um, the coin. And I think you, if you're going to be a performer, you have to know what people think your performance is and give it to them. Okay. And do you think that happens to comedians a lot as well? Yes, of course it does. Um, you know, they go... Uh, you know, Sarah Millican is, you know, cuddly, mumsy, Geordie, blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, Jack D is grumpy. And, you know, that's because that is what the comedians, the performer has given to telly. They've gone, this is me. Now, once you've done that, that's your pact with the devil. You can't then turn around and go, actually, I'm more than that. Because no, you're not. Not what you signed the contract for. And again, it's, you can be more creative on stage or online than on TV because you can change your persona at any time and you're not tied into that. Yeah, but also, I mean, even off stage with any kind of an audience, it's not even so much with TV as with the audience. If you're a performer, if you're doing stuff in public, you make a deal with the audience. There's what I am. I'm, you know, a hard-faced, loud-mouthed, um, misogynist bitch. That's, that's the deal. And it would be, you know, there's a lot of people would be very badly let down if I suddenly um, turned around and became touchy-feely, you know, feminist and, you know, into yoga and faith healing. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it, it's, it's interesting just 
from my point of view, it's interesting because there's such a lot of the stuff that I do elsewhere that nobody knows about. But they, that's not the deal. You know, there's no point in, in my going, wow, you don't know about this, you don't know about that. Because what people know is what you present in like, you know, things like this, John's blog, uh, popping up on telly, popping up on radio. There's, there's the one me. And that's fine because that's the deal. And I think that's a shame. I think uh, people should be multifaceted. And like when I met up with John and he told me about your shop, and we're in it right now. I mean, do you want to just quickly tell people what it is? Oh, there's no point. No? no well, I think, you know, it's just um, uh, uh, people are always a bit surprised because 99% of my time now is in the shop selling stuff to raise money for the work that I do in Kenya with um, kind of predominantly commercial sex workers. But that's because the very last place that any woman goes is commercial sex work. When she can't get money any other way, she goes onto the street to get money for her kids. And um, they're, they're the women that I work with, and they're the most awesome women. In fact, uh, although it was kind of a new thing for me to meet lots of women and go, wow, you're awesome, it has made me a great deal less... Um, uh, less accepting or less fond of women here. They don't know they're born women here. Good God. You know, they're all banging on about, we haven't got this and we haven't got that. And, oh dear, I want to have four children, only work half a day a week, but still be CEO of a FTSE 100 company. You can't. Newsflash. Fucking suck it up and move on. Uh, but these women in Kenya are so wrong they're just unbelievable women it's a privilege to be working with them anyway this is a comedy podcast moving on well no because this is about what the influential people in comedy do and how they do it all right because when i got talking to john he told me loads of stuff i didn't know like you've you've been a producer and Mm -hmm. a director and a performer and a comedian you've directed porn you've done a lot of charity work and not only do you write erotica you bought an erotic review magazine the erotic review yeah. yeah Which I don't think everyone knows about. Aha. Uh-huh. And I was a lawyer. I was only talking about your entertainment industry credits. Right, I see, yeah. So like when we had Hills on, she was telling us how she used to be a teacher and how that's really informed how she deals with comedians. Right. <laughs> and I know you're the sum of all your experiences, so everything you do informs what you're doing right now. And so when it comes to your opinions on women in comedy over here that's obviously impacted by your work and your charity work absolutely yes it's increasingly it's increasingly um informed by uh, the women that i work with over in kenya who are as i say absolutely amazing and it does mean that i give women over here fairly even shorter shrift than i used to if that was possible the shrift is more or less cut to the bone now but it's uh, and it, it is each year before I go to Edinburgh, I have to sit myself down and have a long, hard talk with myself because one day there will come a time when I go, oh, what the fuck? It's a load of ego-driven maniacs talking about themselves, you know, up in, up in Edinburgh. And if, if I think like that, I can't review. I can't go there. I shouldn't go there because you have to care totally. about you have to get into the Edinburgh bub- bubble and understand how important every single word that you write is and care. So, because um, it's a world away 
from what I do over there. And uh, it's, you know, so having, being maybe online with, with some of the people in Kenya going, oh, this person's just died and this person, this has happened and that's happened. And then going out, meeting somebody who thinks the world has ended because he got three stars instead of four and what's he going to do and it's all a disaster and the show's just not going to go anywhere and it's sometimes difficult not to just throttle these people but you have to understand that that is just as important in Edinburgh in August that is it's a massive thing for in that world and you have to be able to enter that world and live in that world for that month in that place and when I don't feel I can do that, I won't review anymore because it wouldn't be fair. Well, if you're not going to do it, I'm going to plug your shop. Oh, yes, please. Because we established a personal recommendation is worth its weight in gold and I love your shop. So uh, if you want to find it, uh, there'll be a link in the description. It's in the West 12 Shopping Centre in Shepherd's Bush. If you want to pop down and meet Kate or just see the good work she's doing, feel free. Marvellous. Excellent. Ooh, plug away, plug away. It's just a really interesting place to walk around and it's like no other shop I've ever been in. And every every single thing in here has its own story and of the and I buy everything from the people who make it. And they're all hand to mouth, they're all subsistence, you know, craftspeople. Nothing's uh bulk produced and whatever. And I think we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for coming on. That was Kate Copstick. I had such an amazing time chatting with her. She is amazing and just knows her stuff. And although divides opinions on a lot of subjects, I think everyone, performer, audience member, industry member, whatever you are, will get something out of that. Even if it's just learning that she has a really interesting charitable shop that she keeps quiet for some reason. Not sure why. It's cool. So if you want to go down to her shop, it's in the West 12 Shopping Centre in Shepherd's Bush. As I said, there'll be a link in the description and in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening this far. Just a very quick plug for the fact that I am going to be doing a show at Brighton Fringe. Essentially, it's like warm-up preview shows for my Edinburgh show. It's listed under Buddhism and Cats, which is the title for the Edinburgh show. And there's a link in the show notes. So if you're in Brighton and you know where the Carolina Brunswick is, or you're in Brighton and you have Google and can find the Carolina Brunswick, I'm doing nine dates down there. They're all at 7.45 in the after, uh, sorry, 7.45 in the evening, so quarter to eight at night. Uh, it's There's an hour slot, I'm doing about 45 minutes of stuff, and I'm really proud of it, and I really, really would love it if you came down, and come say hi, it'd be really great. If you want to support me and the podcast in any way that, that isn't any of the ways I'm about to mention, you can do it by simply coming to watch me tell jokes and bringing some friends, because it would help me out immeasurably. I could be spending this time working on flyers working on networking with people but instead i'm making this content for you so that's why it's a really even trade if you would like to support me other ways more online uh then you can give the podcast a rating in itunes we're up to 23 reviews i'd love to get up to 25 so if you would love to give it an honest positive review please do it really helps out the show if you have an extra minute, please don't forget to share the link with a friend. You can find the link for this podcast, this actual episode, at simoncane.co.uk. That's S-I-M-O-N-C-A-I-N-E.co.uk forward slash A-T-I forward slash Copstick. And if you want to find any of the, if you can't find a link there, just go to simoncane.co.uk 
forward slash Ask the Industry Podcast and you'll be able to find all the episodes of the podcast and you can share any of the links to any of your friends that you think it'd be worth them listening to. If you're loving the show and you would love to keep it going, please consider financially supporting the podcast by going to my website, which is simoncain.co.uk and typing in uh, 5, 10, 20 pounds, whatever you think it's worth, in the PayPal button. There's one on the right-hand side. You just click it, type it how much you want to give, and then if you have a PayPal account, it'll take it straight from your account. If not, you'll have to type in your payment details and it will come whizzing through to me and you'll get an email from me probably within a day, maybe two, thanking you personally. So please consider doing that. It really helps out the podcast and it also reaffirms to me that people are listening because it's just it's just a nice little, hey, I'm here and I was listening and I really appreciate it. So please consider doing that. But um, if you can't afford it and you don't have the money or whatever, sharing it uh, means that someone else might because there might be a listener out there who has a little bit of money they can spare. Thank you so much for listening. I should have a new episode out in early April. The guests for April at the moment are Jill Edwards, who runs a comedy course down in Brighton. And I'm quite excited to talk to her about writing structures, show structures and if comedy can be taught, we're going to get into that quite deeply. Uh, Julian Caddy, who is the managing director of the Brighton Fringe, he is uh, going to come on and discuss marketing methods at the Fringe for people who aren't local to that festival, which would be perfect for me. And uh, also just tips on how to make the most of your Brighton Fringe, because it's sometimes, for me, it feels a little bit odd and a little bit like you're disconnected from the fringe because I won't be living down there like I will I'll be living up in Edinburgh for Edinburgh obviously but I'll be coming back and forth all the time from Brighton like a commute so uh, I'm looking forward to hearing his thoughts on that and any little nuggets of gold he can offer us and then there'll be one other guest because I'm doing three of these a month but I haven't got confirmation from who I want yet so I'm keeping it quiet because if it comes off it'll be a very big guest. So if you're new here, please hit subscribe and you'll get more content like this. And thank you very much for listening. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 